You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Opportunities don't happen. You create them. And that's from Chris Grosser. You know, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. We got an author on deck. We're going to do, explore his book. And what a what a timely topic for the, the, the this author's book has for the day, especially with this COVID-19 and some of these issues getting better. Hopefully those of you tuning in will be blessed and see some benefits and maybe in your own personal life from what he shares from the book that he wrote. But I just want to repeat that quote one more time. Opportunities don't happen. You create them. And that's by Chris Grosser. There's something to remember because sometimes we get caught up in magical thinking and we just want stuff to magically happen. And it takes work and and mistakes and learning what not to do. Instead of doing this, I better do that to get the opportunities and the results that you want. But I want to welcome you, my friend, to this Saturday morning. The sun is coming through the window. The sun rays. This November 21st, 2020, if you're in the United States, you know next week is Thanksgiving. So I want to say happy Thanksgiving to you because by our next show, Thanksgiving will be passed. And so will Black Friday. For those of you who get out and do your shopping, whether you're going to shop online or you get hitting the stores, I think I'm going to go into the stores this Friday. But I want to say again, and welcoming you to those 16 years with us. Thank you, thank you to our loyal listeners. Those of you that might be your first time catching the show, you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show off the shelf. And I welcome you again to this Saturday, November 21st show. Before we introduce you to today's guest, and I'm excited about the show, I was doing an interview on another uh, show uh, last week, and I told the, the the host, I said, I learned something from every guest who comes on off the shelf. So excited to see what I learned from our guests this morning. But before we introduce your guests, I want to tell you about two books. The first book is Awaking Blessings of Inner Love, Shortcuts to Self-Care Techniques to Success in a Busy World. That book came out, I released that book about three weeks ago. That is my first nonfiction book. I, I really encourage you to get a copy. So this is the thing I tell people. It sounds simple, but it, the habits you have in the morning, the habits you have as you close out your day, the things you do maybe at the top of each hour, or maybe you do something every 30 minutes or every 15 minutes, it has so much impact. And because we don't know what's coming next in our life, who saw COVID, who saw the Great Recession, who saw the Great Depression, who saw whether it's something really, really good or or unwelcomed, a lot of things happen we don't see. But a good way to prepare yourself is to practice self-love every day, certain techniques that are shared in the book, Awaking Blessings, Blessings of Inner Love, that can help you when a storm does come, and you can get on through it and it's, instead of it wiping you out. I, I cannot say that enough. I cannot say that enough. Another book that I want to tell you about is Love Pour Over Me, and this is a, a it's fiction, but I, every book isn't for everybody. But if you love mystery and suspense and you also love romance, I would really encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. There's a guy in there, 
his father has untreated alcoholism. He goes to college, and he witnesses a murder. He has nothing to do with it as soon as he comes on campus. Then he meets these four four friends. They're friends for life. They do very well. One's on his way to the Olympics. The other one is it does very well in the NFL. They're from different parts of the world. One of his friends, though, the finger starting to point his way. He meets his friend after he witnesses his murder. The 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 the, the, the murder is starting to point at one of his friends. What would you do? And then the relationship between him and his, she's truly the woman he's supposed to be with, Brenda. They meet in college, but his the trauma he's experienced as a child will it block his heart so he will never receive her love. If if you value suspense, mystery, and romance, and relationships, I, I really would get a copy of Love Pull Over Me. You can get it in ebook or print. Just look for Love Pull Over Me by Denise Turney, and you can start enjoying that book today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Andrew Mann. His name, the whole time I was researching for his interview, I said his name sounds so familiar. Is there somebody named Andrew Mann who did something great? And maybe it's him, I don't know. But his name just had this familiarity to it. Andrew makes his home in Bergen County, New Jersey. I know New Jersey. I used to live there. In addition to being an author, Andrew is part owner of the solar energy business. Go ahead, Andrew. And as someone who has done the work to recover from addiction, Andrew helps others who suffer from addictions and child abuse traumas. And for that, I say thank you. He enjoys boxing, MMA, surfing, and alternative energy. And he is the author of the book, Such Unfortunates. We are absolutely honored to have Andrew join us on Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Andrew. Thank you, Denise. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you you sound a little bit muffled, but I can hear you. Try, uh, is that better? Yeah, that is a little better. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you for having me on, Denise. I really appreciate it. And what you share in your book, you know, with this COVID, they say that, Depression's going up, suicides, people calling psychiatrists, drug abuse, all these things are going up. So this is so on time, and hopefully the the people who listen to it, this show will find the right people, and, and who knows who will be helped from it. But That's the great. first two questions I'm it is the first few questions I'm going to ask you. I ask every guest, so our listeners get a little backstory on our guests before I start talking about their books. So to begin today's show, Andrew, can you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? I grew up in southern New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia, um, a town called Morristown, about 15 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Um, and life for, for me growing up was it looked good on the outside, but behind closed doors, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, you know, we looked like a family that had everything together, but I, I, I grew up in a very abusive uh, household. And um, so growing up for me, that's kind of what led to my addiction. But growing up for me was not a, a pleasant time. I didn't have a pleasant childhood like most people do. When I think back on childhood, I have more of a, a sick feeling in my stomach than a nostalgic feeling, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, go ahead. 
It's, I think it's a blessing, though. When I read uh, Susan Summers wrote a book called Keeping Secrets years ago, and I found it very helpful. Uh, she said for years when you said your family had that on the, at first glance like the perfect family, like leave it to be right. family. But she said she 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 would tell lies and about her family and her father had yeah, alcoholism and um, was abusive. But um, she said one day she decided she wouldn't keep it no more secrets. She wasn't telling no more lies, and she said it, it was just so freeing to hear you talk the way you do. And so many people deal with things where uh, in church they seem like the perfect family at school and society, the community, but there's a lot going on behind the closed doors. And maybe for every family there's something going on that people right. people hide. Um, it's just yep. it's refreshing when people come out and say, "Look, I'm I'm not hiding. You can keep hiding if you want to, and I'm gonna tell it the way it right. is." So it's it's refreshing, and it could be freeing for a lot of people who are keeping secrets. So I thank you for that. Um, now, yeah, as a kid, oh, I can only imagine. Oh, okay. Again, I'm going back to what what she said in her book. She said she tell a lot of lies, and she said it was just so freeing. As as a kid. Andrew, when you were a little boy, what did you what did you dream of becoming when you grew up? What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, you know, I, it was I didn't really have I, I wanted to be something famous was the one thing I wanted to be something where I could get away from my present situation um, and move out to California. So I wanted to be something famous is really what I wanted to be, but. Um, as a child, I didn't really look up to, you know, I didn't say, oh, I want to have a career as a doctor or a lawyer or something like this. I was more concerned about surviving through the next day. Um, I had developed a really bad anxiety problem, and, and I really, had, and as a child, I would believe I was going to die every day. I was having panic attacks, and so I would believe I was having a heart attack, so I wasn't really thinking about future goals. I was more thinking about how I was going to survive the next day. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you, you, you just wanted to do something. You said where you would be famous, or, uh, uh, but not, nothing nothing in particular. But you've gone on to do some pretty fascinating things. Who, who, or what in, who or what inspired? You wrote a book. You know, a lot of people go through a lot of things. They might get on stage and do motivational speaking. Uh, based on experiences like you know, things you've overcome, but not sit down and write a book. Who or what inspired you to pursue writing and, and to actually your your appreciation for books? Counselor of mine um, and a few family members of friends who have died from addiction uh, came to me and they asked me, you know, how were you able to do it but my son wasn't? And when I talked to this one mother in particular, she's like, after talking to you, I feel so much better. She's like, I've been holding all this inside. And if I could have just talked to you two years ago, it would have saved me so much grief. And she was like, you have to share your story with other families that have gone through this. And so that was one of the motivators. And then I had a counselor where I turned in a few pages of writing and she was like, you have to write a book. Your story is amazing, and it needs to be told because you'll save people's lives. Wow! You, and, and you know what? A book you can read in private. It's an e-book. Nobody even has to know what you're reading. Uh, right. Some people, if they have embarrassment or shame, 
or or they don't even know that maybe you're going through an addiction yourself. You're just reading this book. They might not even know what it's about. So it's kind right. of a safe a safe way to um, to start to heal and face whatever you're dealing with. Now, the first time that you experimented with drugs, uh, I remember when I was in high school, and I, I never did, did drugs, but I know I have friends who've struggled uh, and first fortunately overcome hard drug addictions. But um, some people do it just they just want to, they don't do it really for, for like they would just want to get high. They want to experience an altered state. It's almost like a person, some people meditate. They want to go into, they want uh, to see if they can surface some unconscious thoughts or whatever. So some people do it almost like a curiosity, but not for a negative reason. So the first time that you experimented with drugs, was it to like experience an altered state or or to free yourself from the pain of child abuse? It was to free myself from uh, abuse. I had, uh, the first time I ever drank alcohol, it relieved my anxiety and I had nothing had ever done that before so once I tried that it was like wow this is a miracle and now I want to stay on this alcohol 24 hours a day so I don't have anxiety and I'm saying this at 13 years old so then when people brought up drugs to me I said well if I do these if they do more than the alcohol does I'm going to feel even better in my own skin it wasn't about getting high. It was about being able to feel okay in my own skin. When, when you believe, uh, you know, if someone goes through a, a scary situation, like a holdup in a bank or something, and they believe they might die, they may get counseling for that for years. And I really lived that every day of my childhood. I believed wholeheartedly, 100%, that my heart would stop. I took myself to the hospital almost 60 times uh, in the emergency room, believing I was dying. Wow! Oh yeah. my goodness! And it goes back to you just you just wanted relief. Uh, and this is what, what I, uh, next question I had wasn't initially going to ask you this. Uh, and trying to give help for for anybody who tunes into the show. Um, did you know when you were drinking that you were drinking to try to get rid of the pain from the child abuse? Did you know that, or did you just think you were just drinking because it felt good? I I did um I didn't think of it as much as I do now but I also had um because of the abuse I had a hard time with women um when I would be intimate with them unless I was completely drunk out of my mind so if I liked a girl and and wanted to be intimate with her I would have to do shots of alcohol you know to till I was plastered um because if I started getting flashbacks of abuse, it would I would run from the situation. And the only thing that seemed to cure that was large amounts of alcohol. So I would, so I did realize I was doing that. I didn't dissect it and think about it as much as as I do now when I look back on it. But but I did realize I was doing that. Mm. Now, is addiction, Andrew? Is it a brain condition? Or is it like is it a cry for help to get away from pain? If you studied it, is it is it actually you know you, we hear with alcoholism that there's a gene that can cause that. And I, I actually had when I was in high school, a guy came to our high school, and I thought what he did was marvelous. He said his parents both had struggled with alcoholism, and he swore he would never ever ever drink. But he went out with some friends in college, and he started to throw them back, and he said. His friends were able to stop after so many drinks, but he 
he he just didn't want to stop. And he, he said that he, he really believed there is a gene because he said he would, when he's with other people, they can stop, but he's like, he can't. And so, um, but he was telling everybody in school just to, to be safe, you know, what is it, uh, 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 an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure? He said just don't drink right. at all. Because you, you, don't, you, don't what, what, you don't know when you start doing something. For you, it could be decades before you come out of it, if you do. For somebody else, they can just do it sometimes and then stop. But maybe you right. can't. So he, he was going to all these schools telling people. He said to this day, if he sees a commercial with liquor on his mouth, starts watering. He said, I'm telling you, just don't do it. So it, it, and that sounds like a gene or a brain condition, is it? Is it like a gene or a brain condition addiction for it? And there's so many addictions, different kind of food addictions, and we can just go on right. and on and on. Is it is it a I brain believe, condition? You know, I, I I'm not a hundred percent convinced on that. I, I believe it could be in some aspects, but in my case, what brought this on? Um, if I had been, I believe this wholeheartedly. If I say I was adopted when I was born and I was raised in a loving, healthy family without abuse, I don't think I would be an addict today. Oh, okay. Because I ended up, and the reason I I deducted this was I, when I ended up homeless on the streets of Camden, New Jersey, there were a bunch of other addicts that had gotten that low in their life. And the only thing in common that we all had, we were all different sexes, different races, different ages, but the only thing we all had in common was a very abusive childhood. That's it. And, you know, even when I went to all these rehabs, people would say, well, I wasn't abused in childhood. And then they would get out telling their story and it was like, oh yeah, wait a second, I was. And some people black it out. And what happens when a, when a child gets abused um, their brain, a doctor explained this to me, their brain won't develop like another child's brain would. So if a child is abused, they don't develop the right amount of endorphins and dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine that another child would. So when that child wakes up, he's excited about his day. He wants to be successful. He's thinking about the future. The other child wakes up. He's like, oh my God, I got to go to school again. I got to do this. You know, they're not they're just getting by in school. They'll be class clowns and act out because you need some kind of extra stimulation. And they're the ones that go into smoking cigarettes in the beginning and any type of alcohol. And I just, I've seen a connection between it. Could there be a gene? There really could be, um, especially with alcoholism. Um, You know, I really don't know a ton about it enough, but in my experience, um, the one common commonality between addicts was the abuse and that is how we fix the addiction that's how i've come the rehabs just want to take the drugs away and then put the person back on the street which is great but if they don't work on what that problem inside of them and get it out and get healing for it that made them use in the first place they're more than likely going to go back to addiction and yeah because the the issue is still there Problem is still there. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I heard a study on people who are in prison. They said how many were abused as children, and and we don't do enough to protect children. Children can't vote, can't vote. We just look at them as little people. They they don't have the power to knock 
you hit them, they don't. They're too small to knock you down. So they don't. Right. They, they're not physically a threat. They uh uh they, they don't they don't have jobs. They it, it, right. it's like they're and there's just not enough done. They, this it has to be spotlighted. It is not enough. And then when a person who was abused grows up and they act out, they're just then they're punished. And it's like, well, where were right. you when I was a kid? Exactly. Where were you? When I was exactly. a kid being abused, now you're all over me. That you picked that up, yes. And so they're they're abused again by the system, basically. Yeah, and and so when were you when you could have helped me to prevent all of this? You were you were just I was just a right. little person, and and you had no regard guard for it. Now, did you go to the doctor right after you had your first anxiety attack? I'm told having an anxiety attack feels like you're actually having a heart attack, or you, yes. it feels real. Did you go right away? Um, and if it so, took were those doctors helpful? And the thing was, when I went to the doctor, his solution was Xanax. So at 13 years old, he put me on Xanax, and Xanax is an addictive benzodiazepine that uh, once you start, you can't just stop it. If you stop it immediately, you could have seizures and actually die from benzodiazepine withdrawal. So I didn't know what I was getting into. What the doctor should have done, I did need that because I was in such a panic state, but I should have used it only when I got in the panic attacks instead of every day. Uh, the most you should use a benzodiazepine, I should have maybe three days at a time. Because if you go past that, your body becomes physically addicted to it. So even if you're not having anxiety, you still have to take it so you don't go through withdrawals. And mm. the problem is when you're 13 and you're drugged up on Xanax, it, it just it numbs you out to the world. It makes you a shell of a person to who you are. You don't feel the same emotions. It numbs all these good things about you. So it was just a shame as a child, you know, I'm just to be able to go out in the world, I'm having to numb my body. It was just, it was an awful experience. And um, I became addicted to those Xanax was really the first uh, drug I became addicted to at 13. And, 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 and yeah, thanks to a doctor, you would think a doctor would know better uh, than to do something like that. Now, were you able to function at high levels while dealing with addiction, and and, and now I'm thinking of, of parents who might have lost a child or their child is struggling with an addiction, and they don't even know their kid has an issue. Were you able to function right. at high levels in school and at I, home while you were dealing with an addiction? No, um, but I'll tell you something that was interesting that did happen. Um, when I first discovered opiates like Oxycontin and heroin, Oxycontin was really the first opiate I discovered. When I took that, it normalized my brain chemicals where other people would get high off of it. I, when I took it, it was like the answer to my prayers. My anxiety went away. I felt normal. And I actually was able to get A's in school. I, was, I had dropped out of regular college and I was going to community college and I was able to get A's for the first time in my life being high on Oxycontin. Because, and a doctor explained it to me too, that for someone like me, that would normalize chemicals in my brain. So I was motivated in the morning. I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking, all these things. And I would just take the Oxycontin. And at that point, I really didn't feel like I was a drug addict because I was taking a pill from a doctor. 
But, um, you know, I couldn't just stop taking it, and it was a very dangerous drug. I could have overdosed and died. But it did make me – it did normalize whatever was in my brain that made it impossible for me to – a day at school was so overwhelmingly boring to me before that that I couldn't sit there and concentrate. But under the influence of OxyContin, I was able to, and I got straight A's. So that's interesting. Yeah, because you, I always think that people seem really sleepy with opiates and like they could uh, hardly function. Uh, that's interesting. Like you said, you said it for you. That was the effect that it had on you. Now, how can we stop addictions that stem from prescription drugs? And they seem to start out very innocently. A doctor prescribes you the drug, and now you're hooked. Yes. How can well, we stop? Uh, <laughs> they they cut down a lot on doctors prescribing it. At first, what these pharmaceutical companies did was absolutely awful. They went and they basically bribed doctors to go give people Oxycontin, and they did it in, in poorer neighborhoods in West Virginia and Kentucky and all these coal mining neighborhoods. Somebody came in with a headache. They were going out with an Oxycontin prescription because the doctors were getting paid by Purdue Pharma. And they, Purdue just got sued for billions of dollars. And there, a few people went to jail over this, but it really ruined whole towns. Um, instead of, I saw a thing where, you know, the doctors all in this town had started prescribing Oxycontin. And now the biggest business in town that's left is the jail. Most of the citizens in there are all locked up in jail. And mm. that's their solution. And it's just, it's awful. But I, um, my goal really is to start a foundation, which is like a, a rehabilitation center um, that helps addicts in all the ways I know that actually help, not just a, a tune-up for 30 days and then send them back on the streets. And believe it or not, I want to use, I want it to be also incorporate animals. I've seen how much animals can heal people that have, suffered from abuse and addiction um so i was thinking about having uh a basically like an animal shelter next to the rehab that people could work at um you know if they and get healing from the animals they've tried it in jails and it's been incredibly successful for the people in there yeah you know uh a group that i'm in um they do like with people in the military who have PTSDs and uh, that giving them like a dog, and I forget what the name of the program is. And some of them have been, you know, gone to prison. But they say it's, it's one one woman. She said her brother probably said he couldn't function without his dog. It's yep. just the they know when you're getting this high level of stress, and they can somehow do something to help bring you down. So the stress doesn't get too bad. But uh, people who've been in war, you know, you talk about a, a, a trauma, and then some of them have a dog that they keep with them. Uh, I've seen yep. people who, uh, homeless, who they have a pit bull with them, or there's a dog constantly with them and helping them. Uh, it's just amazing when you say it with animals. And I've heard some people say they've done horse therapy with horses, yeah. and they found that, yep. that helpful as well. Uh, before we start talking about unfortunate, I definitely want to dig into that to your book, the unfortunate, sure. such unfortunate. Yeah. How bad? Just how bad is 
opium addiction in the United States, and I asked you this before you answer, from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem like it even exists. Which is a shame because it is it is terrible. It is a huge, huge problem. Last year we had 73 or 74,000 deaths from oh. and that is more than the whole Vietnam War, all 10 years of the Vietnam War. Wow. And so 74,000 people died from it. And it, like you said, it's being swept under the rug. They're talking about politics and all this other stuff while people are dying and people are suffering. And it is, it is affecting so many families out there. Uh, it's unbelievable. And it should be. It should be a much higher priority. What does was does uh, well? Let me ask you this first, and then I want to ask you another question. And we start talk, going into such unfortunate for parents who might be listening, and they're they're clinging to just a shred of hope. Are there signs? Are there signs that a teen or a preteen is dealing with drug addiction? Because I hear people say they they had drug addiction or they were taking drugs, and there was no way to tell. No way. Are there signs and that somebody's there? There are. There are. And that I could pick up on it. Um, it may be a little bit harder for a parent to pick up on. Um, but uh, signs, a few things. It, if a person under the influence of opiates, their pupils will be like pinpoints. So if your child is acting strange and even in, in, in dark, their pupils will say really small. That is an effect of opiates that you can't hide. You can't fake it. There's nothing they can do to get away from that. So in low light, if your child's um, pupils are the size of pinpoints, there might be uh, an opiate problem there. Also, stealing, um, you know, when it comes to addiction, the stealing is a big red flag. People that would never steal before, once they feel the withdrawal come on, it's not about getting high to them. The withdrawal from opiates is such an awful feeling. It's like the flu times a thousand and everything hurts. Everything's all, I mean, it's just terrible. People will do crazy things like steal, lie and do, you know, take the car out or whatever. Um, also, you know, them sleeping, it can knock people out for a much longer time or they can stay up much longer. I used to stay up on opiates. It used to give me energy. Um, but is it a direct, like you're going to, like alcohol, like you'd see under the influence of alcohol? No. And some people nod out where their, their head will drop, like they're falling asleep, but they're not asleep and they should be awake are some of the signs to look for. But being an addict, I can always tell. If somebody thinks their kid has a problem, they'll ask me, you know, could you talk to them? And I can tell in five minutes or not. But that's just wow. my experience. Yes. But but the parent, the poor parent, who's who's yeah. just worried sick, they they may yeah. be clueless that absolutely clueless that it's going on. Now, is it true that you have to hit rock bottom before you reach out for help? Is it, do you really have to hit the bottom? I don't believe that. The reason they say that, I understand why they say that. The addiction for somebody like me. The addiction, the drugs gave me a freedom from, I really felt like I was living in hell. 
So when I took the drugs, it was like, oh, my God, I feel great. I feel like everyone else does. I want to live like this all the time. But the problem is the drugs, they're illegal, and they're expensive, and you can get overdose, and you don't know who you're buying them from. So it's not a good thing to do. So I couldn't just keep doing it. Um, and that's where in lies the problem with it. And it's just, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard situation. It's hard to tell. What was your last question before that, that you were asking me again? I'm sorry. I lost track of it. What I was saying. No, I was just asking you if you had to hit rock bottom and you said, oh, that yeah. it's, 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 you said, you I don't, saying, I don't, uh, most people think you do because they feel it needs to be something so like dramatic that you will not want to change unless it's really painful. But I have known people that just go through some uncomfortability and their family gets upset with them and says, listen, you have to change your life and have done it. But the majority of people have to at least hit some pain to want to change and not take those drugs anymore. The main problem is the amount of time. Um, if a person, say they go for just 30 days and they get out of a rehab and they come right back to their neighborhood around stuff, your brain takes a while to get out of that thinking addiction problem at least six months, six to nine months. Wow. And I want to develop a treatment center where people stay at for six to nine months. So then when they get out of there, they're strong enough to go back. Because it's just a waste. If you bring them in for 30 days, they go back to their same neighborhood, and within a day, they're using again. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you if rehab really worked, because you see people go back and back. And some people finally, I'm thinking about, um, oh, she was on One Day at a Time, a TV series, and she wrote a book, and she went through a lot of bad addiction. But Kenzie Phillips, and how many oh, yeah. times she went in, how many times she went in and out before and now she helps other people, but uh, it, it does seem like a, re, a revolving door. Um, so when did you start writing such unfortunates? How 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 old were you? How long had you been sober? Had were you? Did you write the book while you were in in therapy? Um, when did you start I, writing? I had what was started to write a few pages while I was actually in a treatment center, just some of my life story. And that sort of led to me writing it, but it was, I had had over two years of sobriety when I started writing it. Um, and like I said, I, I started having, I had a friend of mine who overdosed and died. And then another friend overdosed and died really young, um, used, tried heroin one time and his first time trying it died. And his mom came to me and asked me, like I said, and that's when I, I decided, you know, I really have to do this and get this story out, even if I can help just one person. And so I started about um, two years into sobriety is when I started writing it. So tell off-the-shelf listeners what some of the topics and some of the some of the things that you take on and and write about in such unfortunates. Sure. Um, I start the book out and I give you an idea right from the beginning of what addiction's life like. You get to see the end result of what happens to people in addiction. In the beginning of the book, you know, it's very, um, very hitch in the face. You know, this is what happens. Then I go back through and I start out through my childhood and, and develop 
how this addiction came about and what were some of the consequences I dealt with because of abuse. I go through some of the trying to have a, a normal relationship with a female. And I talk about going to doctors, seeking help. And then once I get into the addiction, I talk about also the rehabs I went to and why they didn't work and what needed to be different if it was to work. And then finally, um, you know, when all hope seems lost, people that I still to this day consider angels came into my life and um, really helped me through this. Without them, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And um, one in particular. And so that was another reason for writing the book. I wanted to honor them um, because a few people had gone out of their way, people that didn't even really know me. And it was such a, an amazing thing for them to do that I wanted them to be recognized. And so that was another reason for me writing the book. But the majority was to help people with addiction avoid going through what I went through. So when you, when you start the book out, do you start it out? And I'm thinking uh, each book is different. Whether uh, a, a, a child called it, I read that book and it was like, oh my god! But uh, when you start the book out, do you start it out talking about happy times? Well, no, you said your childhood wasn't. You didn't have those happy times. Some people start right. out talking about how what their life was like before the addictions, and um, and then they go into it. Is it was there like any period in your life where? in your childhood where you could say it was somewhat normal? Do you introduce the reader to that? And if there was no such time, yeah. then you wouldn't. Yes, I do. I do. There were some normal aspects of my life that, um, you know, like really from the outside, we looked like a completely normal family. Um, so I do. I introduce that and I talk about it. Um, in the very beginning, it's, it's, me while homeless in Camden. And, and I explained to people where the title came from, Such Unfortunates. I used to go to AA and NA meetings um, even before I, I ended up getting sober. I, I still go to some, but I used to go to them uh, AA more um, instead of NA. Now it's more NA. But in the AA meetings, they would say this phrase, um, and it's about these people called such unfortunates. And they're these people that are just too sick, that they can't be honest with themselves about the addiction, and they're just going to, you know, use and die, and they have no hope. And every time I was in a meeting, that phrase would always stick out to me, and I always thought I was one of those people that would never Mm. get And so that's why I named the book after it, because I wanted people to think if I could do this and how bad I was, there isn't anyone out there who can't do it. So how long were you, was, you said you started with, when a doctor prescribed you Xanax, you were what, 13. Uh, how long was, was that, uh, were you like on either alcohol or drugs, abusing it before you, you, were got you were so got sober um let's see at 13 i started with xanax and drinking and then i started marijuana too at 14 um i started cocaine and then lsd too but then i started cocaine more into my late teens like 19 20 and opiates were about 21 
Um, and then that continued for about 20 years on and off of straight opiate use. I mean, I would get a few months in between or a month here after I went to a rehab, but I always went back to it. So there was a good period of, I'd say, 17 years drug Oh, my goodness. Drink. Yep. And, and, and you never – do you ever think – and, you know, you see it with people who – the way they eat, and, you know, you're, you're eating your way to diabetes or a, a devastating Absolutely. disease. Do you ever stop and say, what am I doing to my organs? What am I doing yeah. to my brain? What am I doing to my liver? Yep, I, I did all the time. I would, and I would just – but the the driving factor of – when you, you hate being inside your own skin, you feel like a prisoner in your own body and there's nowhere you can go to escape it. And it's just so uncomfortable. And the only way you can make that bearable is by taking this drug. You're like, it just overrides that feeling of uh, how bad um, the, it, how bad it is for your body. And what are the top three things uh, I'm going back again to uh, Mackenzie mm-hmm. And she said one of the things she feared was living life sober. She just thought it would be horrible. So what are the, what are the top three yeah. things that people fear about being sober? They're they're really afraid of it. Like, oh, my God, I couldn't imagine it. Well, What are the top three using... things that people fear about being sober that really aren't worth being afraid of? It, you, the first thing is is having to deal with like a problem or say a breakup in a relationship or or a heart you know heartbreak something like that while being sober you feel while you're under the influence you need these drugs to deal with things like that even getting up and being motivated for the day if you feel if you don't have these drugs in you you you're not going to be motivated life will be uh, a miserable boring dark place. It's not the truth, but in your head, it really feels that way once you get addiction. And so that incentive, it's like, why am I going to get clean to live in a misery? And that's another reason why, you know, there needs to be enough time to really heal the brain out of addiction before putting somebody back into the lion's den, so to speak. How in the world? I'm listening to you, and I thank you again. We're 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 speaking with Andrew Mann, and he's the author of the book Such Unfortunates. I I I'm listening to you, and I'm, my heart just keeps going out to the parent. I don't know why I'm just thinking of parents, but um, what what made you finally get help? What made you do that? What what? Did, did 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 somebody run an intervention on you? What made you finally say this is it? What what what, what happened was this: I I was homeless in the streets of Camden, and I basically gave up on my life. I was um a heroin addict, so you know, just a miserable situation. I, a death would have seemed bright. I was just afraid to die, but it, it seemed like a better option, and. The, the way I was able to get out of there, a uh, few strangers actually came to me and helped me get off the streets of Camden and into a rehabilitation center. And there was one woman who I met, um, and I talk about her in the book, who when everybody in the world gave up on me, she 
still stuck by me. And she, she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. If I was her, I would have left me. But she refused to. Um, she helped me get into treatment. And while into treatment, she wrote me a letter every day while I was in there telling me how I was loved and I was good and I needed to do this and I needed to get these things out on the inside. Um, she came and visited me three times a week. She also brought, bought me um, a bracelet that I still wear today that said, you are loved, you are worth it. She bought me a necklace saying sort of the same thing. And uh, she refused to give up on me. And so I, I saw this person who believed in me more than I believed in myself. And through her encouragement, I decided to finally talk about the abuse I had dealt with. And once I got that stuff out, I started to feel a little bit better and then a lot better. And then I became more free about talking to more people about it and getting that stuff out and finally feeling love from another human being actually gave me the motivation to do it this time because I I never, I had never been told I love you from my parents. So if another person outside of my family said that, it was such an uncomfortable thing. I just didn't know what that word meant. And so when this person said it, I finally believed her, you know, because she had no reason to stick by me, uh, really. Uh, there was nothing there. She wasn't gaining anything out of it, but she was just a great person and refused to give up. And through wow. her, I was able to turn it around. So oh, I my dedicated you think the book about, to her. You think about the, the impact that we – like the impact you are, are probably having on people, even now you might not be aware of the people who, there could be people who knew you back when in Camden or other places, and they're like, they see you, if they see you now, it, you could give them hope, even if you don't know they saw you. Like, right. wow, look at him now, and so maybe there's hope for me too. Oh, I just think that it's just, it's just when there's nothing in it and you still help somebody. You're not going to be, nobody's going to send a press release. You're not going to be in a newspaper, a magazine, not getting an award. And you still just keep uh, pulling pulling for somebody. I think that is just amazing. For for somebody who, who does want to help someone, that, that a tactic that that person took was effective. But how could you help somebody who's been resisting help? If they really don't want help, is there like nothing you can do? You just have to wait until they want to help how could you help somebody who's struggling yeah, right that's now? a that's a that's a really great question because it's a really tough one because if somebody doesn't want to help everyone out there i'll tell you it's it's impossible and and i i tend to agree with that but i don't think anything's impossible for my own story i just think they haven't met the right person to give them motivation to get clean um and again you know that's why I want to start this center. I want it to be free that people can get there. And I want it to involve when people go through and they get clean, I want them to be involved with this. I want to have one in every state, to be honest. I want to, I've actually written to politicians. I I wrote to Bill Gates. I started to go fund me, but I want to get one started first. And I want it to be, people could come there, even if they don't have money, um, and then they would live there afterwards until they were ready to go back into society. Um, but we would heal the trauma within them. And I want people to be advocates to help other people get into recovery because 
the one thing that helps me stay clean is helping other people that are suffering with addiction. And if I can be a good, if someone can look at my life and say, you know what, he's got a pretty good life now. I'm an addict and my life's terrible. I don't want it to drugs, but if I could have a life like him, it might be worth it. Maybe I'll go about that. And then they come to a place where, you know, people are, they're, they're willing to be around other addicts that are doing the right thing and not just a place that's run by people that don't know about addiction, that are just being paid by the state to be there. And as soon as their state money runs up, they're kicked out the door. I actually want to care about people. And, um, and that's another reason I believe animals can have a huge impact because a lot of addicts have not had the right amount of love. And an animal, you have to, addiction is a very selfish disease as you have to be selfish to be an addict. And that's when you help raise an animal, you have to be unselfish. So it gets them out of that. And then you feel the love back from the animal and it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Wow. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, and I've definitely prayed at your program and it sounds like in, cause you rehab, I guess people think in 30 days and I've heard this said in 30 days, you can break a habit, 30 days, you can create a habit. And I guess that's where that 30 days with rehab comes from. They think after 30 days, but I've also heard people who struggle with addiction say what, just what you're saying, 30 days, you go back into the same environment and boom, you're doing what you you're right. You're doing it again. You're right. You're right, right. back in the. So it's like it's, it's not 30 days. Is maybe not long enough to really uh, cause a, a a big enough change. And how easy right. or difficult, Andrew, was it for you to revisit the past and write the book Such Unfortunates? It was difficult. It was painful. Um, to have to admit things about my family, like you said about the woman in the beginning, that just said, I'm telling the truth. I don't care what happens. That's really what I had to do. And, um, you know, and I had to, for my own, you know, I had been holding a bunch of lies in for other people at my demise sort of, um, and I had to be truthful and I was, and I just let it all out and, you know, that was very healing for me, but it was very difficult to write it all out and to share it with the world, so to speak. And so it has been, it it, it wasn't easy, but it was a good thing. Once I got it out, I, I felt it was like getting another brick off my back. Are, and are there signs, uh, these last, these two questions on this topic, are there signs of child abuse, it, 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 uh, the parents who are abusing a kid definitely aren't going to report it. But if right. if a neighbor sees something, and by law you're supposed to, by law report child abuse. You cannot be legally is it, a crime to just turn and walk away. You're supposed to report a crime when you see a crime. But are there signs for a neighbor or grandparent? Are there signs of, it, of child yes. abuse? And I'm talking beyond bruises. We know bruises. Right, but beyond right. a bruise, are there any other signs that a child's being abused? Yes, and one I think is in uh, this behavior. Um, if a child becomes sexually active way before they should be, um, in kindergarten, I was coming on to my adult teacher in kindergarten, and um, like sexually, and if a child is being sexual at that age there is something behind it 
you know, the kid is learning it from somewhere. And that was one of the signs. Another, if the child is doing self-harm, um, I would hurt myself as a child um, on purpose. And it's normal children don't want to do that. Um, and a child that got a very bad, um, they, another common theme was a lot of kids uh, had learning, dis- a lot of people that have addiction have learning disabilities. There's what they call it. But what I think it is, is um, when you're abused, your brain just not having the right amount of chemicals as other people do. And being in class for you is 10, everything is 10 times harder when your brain chemicals aren't right. It really is. It's like, I didn't even know how depressed I was because I had never experienced happiness. When I first felt happiness and felt normal, I was like, oh, my God, if I felt like this, I would have never had any problems in life. And then I started to realize most people feel like this normal. And so now I realize why they weren't out drinking and doing all the crazy things I do because I felt great in their life. Not always great, but if you felt the way an addict or a person that suffers with addiction feels inside their body, you would understand why they're looking for a chemical to get out of it. And so um, that's basically and what, how I thought about that. And what can right. each each of us do? Of course, and I don't want to repeat this, if you are aware of, uh, like, the sex slave trafficking, child abuse, you're supposed to report any crime. Yes. You can't just say, oh, I'm not involved, and turn and walk away, because that's a crime in and of itself. You're supposed to, by right. law, report things when you see them. What, what can each of us do to stop? child abuse and to help a help a child who is expensive and in a way that the child remains safe. So if a child's being abused and their parents are extremely violent, you don't go up to the parent and say, you better stop abusing your because right. then a kid could get beat that worse. <laughs> Do it in a way exactly. that the kid's safe exactly. and the kid is not put in harm's way. What are some tips for to do that? Well, I would, exactly what you said, I would not go to the parents and threaten them or get the kid in any more trouble because if the parents are already willing to abuse the kid you could imagine it's going to happen if they get uh, you know they're feeling that they're going to be more angry at the child and it's just going to get taken out on the child i would go to either um someone in law enforcement or someone like uh you know at the school someone you could trust and say to them you know i feel there's something with this child that isn't right and explain what you feel. I mean, you could know other adults. There were things that I did and that other child children weren't doing um, and should have been red flags, but nobody picked up on it because uh, we seemed normal on the outside. Um, and if a child is, is dealing with even emotional problems to an extent that, uh, you know, you can see or are out there, there's, there's a lot of times there's something behind that. Um, and a lot of, of the addicts I met had dealt with severe emotional difficulties in childhood. So it, it's setting a child up uh, for addiction if they don't get help. Yeah. So some kind, just And asking a child maybe simple questions like, I guess you could say, you know, are you getting enough sleep at night if they always seem sleepy? Or ask them why they do something, like you said, with the sexual, asking them, where did you learn that? 
Where did you and do it in a, in a non-condemning, judgmental way, and then maybe move forward and talk to somebody who has experience working with kids who are not only abused but their parents are violent and they know how to approach it. So uh, I would, but don't just do nothing. What what have leaders of, been? Go ahead. One other key thing I wanted to point out that is a key sign of a child that's been abused is a child that's being bullied, and I'll tell you why. When a child gets abused, they don't know how to create healthy boundaries and stick up for themselves, and they will become prey for bullies. And so if you see a child that's being bullied, they're more than likely, uh, I would talk to them, have they been abused? Because I became that way, and that was another common thing among people. Yep. Bullies smell it's like blood in the water. You know, for sharks. Very interesting. That's interesting. What have readers been saying about such unfortunates? We've got about four minutes oh, left. What have you okay, been hearing from readers yeah, about the book? They, uh, you know, it's, uh, really good things. I've I've heard some. They've really uh, amazing things that people have said about it. I've been surprised at how much nice things people have told me. It was. Um, I had one girl tell me she wasn't going to commit suicide because if I could do this, she could do it, and she felt her life was worth it. That was like the most awesome compliment I could get. But, yes, I've I've heard a lot of positive that people didn't understand addiction before. I've heard that this should be in every police academy, um, in front of every lawmaker, politician out there should have to read my book before they decide on things. You know, wow. before they make these laws that punish people, and it should be every prison warden, everyone with addiction should be reading it. So I've heard some really nice things about it. So I was, I was really shocked at that because this is my first book. Yeah, and thank you for writing it. And what you had to really be transparent. So, so thank you for that. Can you share three to four yeah. steps you've taken, you found to be effective at getting the word out about such unfortunates? Yes, I I joined um, a lot of groups through Facebook. I joined a lot of other author groups um, and different, um, you know, they're like uh, book book groups or book uh, reviews, and I'll I'll post who I am in my book, and this is what my book's about if you'd like to get to see it and go in those. So I would get in as many of those groups as possible. Um, I'd also do promoting through friends and family, uh, and you can do that through Facebook. If if ten of your friends post your book to their friends, I mean you're reaching thousands of people at that point. And if they could, you could ask them to keep posting it for you and get it out there. The third way is doing as many as what I'm doing today, getting on radio shows. I've probably done thirty so far um, in the year and a half since my book's been out. I've also done podcasts radio shows, um, even a television show. So any show that you can get on that will get your book in front of people is a great idea. There's, you know, there's the more you get out better, the more access you get, the more people you tell about your book, um, because it's hard when you're, you know, not a well-known author to get a lot of people to see your book. Um, I've spent some money on advertising it's not it, – I've sold some books that way, but it wasn't really worth it. Um, but the main doing what I did, 
getting on radio um, and doing shows like this has been great for myself. And and your book is is a book I think that should be out there. Where can off the shelf listeners get a copy of your book, Such Unfortunates? Amazon, and it it is on Amazon. It's also available on Audible. I didn't do the Audible version. I had another gentleman read it for me, um, and but it is available on Audible. It's available on hard copy and on soft copy. If you go to Amazon, Such Unfortunates search Andrew Mann, it will pop up. There's also other sites that sell it, but Amazon is the main one that I recommend people go to just because I that's the one I most sell through is Amazon. Now do and do, is it an ebook as well? Yes. It's also on Kindle okay. Unlimited. If you have Kindle Unlimited you can read it for free actually. So okay. if you're a, a member of that. So an e- it's an ebook, soft copy, hard copy and Audible, every every way you can yep. get it. And just, just listen to the interview to our office of listeners. If you know somebody also, that you know could. If, if I could just ahead. mention also, I do have the GoFundMe. If you want to see what my um, what is it about for the center I'm trying to create, the foundation, if you search Such Unfortunates Foundation, Andrew Mann on GoFundMe, you'll see the GoFundMe set up and what I'm trying to create. If anyone knows anyone that can help with that or wants to donate, that would be amazing. Thank you. Okay. Well, we have had the pleasure of interviewing Andrew Mann, and he's the author of the book, Such Unfortunates. If you know somebody who's either dealing with child abuse or an adult who's who's not still working through that trauma, and it could take decades of to, to daily work to get through these types of things. That's why we have to stop child abuse. We have to stop it early. Or if you know somebody who's dealing with an addiction, alcohol, narcotics, even somebody with a food addiction, I mean, you become a prisoner. These shows I see people with food addictions, they can't even walk. So it's it's worse than being in a cell. You can't even get up out of your bed. Uh, Anybody dealing with those type of addictions because of trauma from their childhood, uh, such unfortunates could be so helpful. And then the the foundation that Andrew Mann is trying to start. So, again, Andrew Mann, such unfortunates, e-book, audio, audible, uh, uh, soft copy, hard copy. You can maybe be helping somebody if it's not for you to give it to somebody else who you think could could benefit. It's not even judged. You just give them the book and they read it, and it, 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 the book does whatever good work it's meant to do for that person. So we thank Andrew Mann for being here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. And as always, I thank you, our thank Off the you. Shelf listeners, for being here with us. You are amazing. You're incredible. You're an awesome. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Andrew, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wish you boundless Thank you so much. It was, great. You did a great, it was great questions. I really appreciate having me on. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And to our listeners, see you back here next set. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Who, 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 I know we're global, but those in the U.S., Happy Thanksgiving, and uh, see you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bye for now. Andrew, I'll send you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Bye for now. Great. Thank you. Bye now. What if you could have a career? where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, 
where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.